السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والعاقبة للمتقين ولا عدوان إلا على الظالمين وأشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له إله الأولين والآخرين وأشهد أن نبينا محمد عبده ورسوله المصطفى الأمين اللهم صل وسلم وبارك على عبدك ورسولك محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين أما بعد uh, welcome to another lesson of Quranic Progression QP and as you know we are coming towards the tail end towards the conclusion of the surah that we're currently doing tafsir of and that is Surah Al-Fajr and just casting our minds back over the last few weeks uh, when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has uh, from the beginning of the surah until the uh, verses that we, we, we spoke of last week Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has spoken about the the nature of people when it comes to their attachment to the dunya and their uh, deception or the way that they become deceived by the blessings that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sometimes bestows upon them and the way that they react with those blessings and the way that they react as a result of those blessings that they have received. And so Allah Azza wa Jal spoke about the people of Ad and Thamud and Pharaoh and the way that they would respond and the way that they would behave as a result of Allah Azza wa Jal's blessings upon them and the ones as we mentioned uh, previously the ones that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala focuses upon in Surah Al-Fajr is the blessings that Allah Azza wa Jal gave to each one of those nations in terms of their strength and their might and their physical abilities and despite that then leading them to kufr and disbelief and rejection of Allah Azza wa Jal and his prophets and messengers Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala destroyed them to show them and us that the true power and true might belongs to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala alone. And no matter how strong a person becomes, no matter how advanced a group of people may become, no matter how mighty a civilization uh, becomes or advanced it becomes, ultimately Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the one who controls everything in the heavens and the earth. And there is nothing that is over and above the power of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that is a very important lesson and something which is extremely important in terms of us remembering what is the uh, what is the thing that we should bear in mind as we come to look at Allah Azza's blessings upon us? Allah Subhanahu wa Taala then spoke about the people of uh, bringing back to the people of of, of Quraysh and, and the general people as well, and some of the attributes that they had. That when Allah Azza gave them certain things and certain blessings like power and wealth and station and fame or whatever it may be from those blessings that people become overly attached to, that that led them also then to. Uh, to look down upon and to not provide the rights of those who are less fortunate than them, whether it be the orphan, whether it be the poor, uh, and that is because, or whether it's devouring the inheritance of others, and that is because human nature has a great attachment to materialism. People love wealth and the idea of wealth and the power that wealth brings and the influence that it brings alongside it. And it is because of that that then people will reject giving zakat or helping others or being charitable with some of their wealth, even if it is not a great amount in the overall scheme of what Allah has blessed them with. But that is the nature of people. So the verses that we took last week, one of them was the uh, verses which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is speaking about the nature of people. And Allah said, That it is the nature of people that they love wealth a great deal, a ferocious, severe love. Uh, and as we mentioned, the, the statements of the scholars, alayhi muhammadullah, from uh, scholars of tafsir, that they said that the word uh, jamma means a great or passionate love, meaning that it is something which is infused within human nature that they love, uh, materialism. 
and that is why being absolute, having abstinence from the dunya or, or zuhud is something which is which is praised and it is something which is looked upon as being uh, good and worthy in Islam obviously within its limits and within its boundaries and within its correct interpretation because there is an extreme incorrect interpretation of what zuhud is and what it means to be someone who's abstinent from the dunya or what it means from to be someone who is who has reached a, a higher level of piety and sometimes those concepts or the way that they explain or the way that they're thought of isn't necessarily the correct understanding of a zuhud but a zuhud and that is why you find by the way uh, you know at a period of, of islamic history there were a number of great imams of Islam that started authoring and compiling books on the topics of a zuhd. So, for example, the book of a zuhd of Imam Ahmad Taala, the book of a zuhd by Waqi' ibn Jarrah Taala. These are from the generation of the imams of Islam. Waqi' ibn Jarrah is from the teachers of Imam Shafi, as we know, and Imam Ahmad has or needs no introduction. That generation, so we're talking pretty early on within the first couple of centuries of Islam, they're already authoring these works. Why? Because a trend started to emerge that took the concept of a zuhd and it twisted it. Just as before that there were trends, for example, people coming and, and denying Allah's decree, people going overboard when it came to the station of the household of the Prophet ﷺ, his family, like Ali an, and Fatima al-Hussein al-Hassan al-Hussain, they went uh, overboard. Uh, the khawarij that came and they had their warped concept of what it means to establish Allah's rule and so on. All of those things started to appear during that generation. And one of those concepts that also started to become twisted in the way that it was in its correct understanding was the concept of a zuhd. And there is a general principle that if you see a number of scholars, a number of imams in a single time or at a single generation writing topics on a certain uh, writing or authoring on a single topic, it is often because they are trying to combat a trend or a incorrect interpretation and understanding of what is a principle of Islam. So someone takes, for example, the issue of Aqeedah, or one of the issues of Aqeedah, and they start to misunderstand it. You'll find a great number of scholars started to write down and pen in those days their Aqeedah. What is the Aqeedah of Islam? What is the Aqeedah that they learned from their teachers and their teachers going back to the companions? And that's why you have in our time the Aqeedah of the likes of Sufyan al-Thawri and Sufyan ibn Uyayna and Imam al-Bukhari, and Imam Ahmad, and al-Humaydi, and those scholars of those generations, because they saw all of the problems with peoples corrupting the belief of, of Islam, or the aqidah, the theology of Islam, so they started to write. So one of those things also that started to happen was the concept of zuhud became somewhat warped, that you have to completely be abstinent from the dunya, or there's certain ways of, of showing this, or there's certain manners of expressing this, and that's where you know the, the, the terminology that would then become very, very common and very well known of the Sufiya, that's where it kind of emanates from, right? And it has within its uh, essence or its origins, things that were praiseworthy and good because some of the scholars, it is generally based on the overall principle of a zuhd. But when the principle of Islam is taken and it is misunderstood or misinterpreted or used in a way that is not according to the Quran and the Sunnah, that is problematic. And so you find those scholars writing books on a zuhd and al wara for this particular reason. Uh, and it was a common practice, by the way. Uh, because one of the things that a zuhd does, see, so we have the two extremes. One is the one that Allah Azza wa Jalla is mentioning in 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 in, in Surah Al-Fajr, and that is the extreme of those people who are so materialistically attached that if you were to take and remove that from them, it would probably lead them to self-destruction. They wouldn't be able to cope because their whole life is about what they own and what they possess and how much they have. It is their status that they have become so attached with and to. Allah Subhanahu wa Taala tells us about the importance, therefore, on the Prophet ﷺ in his sunnah about zuhd. 
And so one of the things that the scholars of old would do is that often when they were studying and they were reading, for example, books of tafsir or books of hadith or other types of books, they would often finish their sessions or they would do a reading of a book of zuhud at the end, a book to soften the hearts. Because sometimes even knowledge, because with knowledge comes a certain amount of station, a certain amount of respect that is afforded to that individual, a certain amount of position that may sometimes be given because of that knowledge. So sometimes knowledge can also lead people to becoming arrogant or looking down upon others. It can lead to a sense of pride that can be problematic. Pride in the sense that it is disallowed in Islam, not the sense that someone genuinely wants good for someone else, but they covet that thing that they had or they have envy of it in a good way. Like the Prophet said, There are only two types of people that you're allowed to be envious of. The one who Allah has given knowledge to. Not because you want that knowledge removed, but because you want to be like them. You want to emulate them in their knowledge. You want to reach that level of coming closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And it is permissible in that form because no harm is intended to that individual. They're your teacher, they're your scholar, they're an imam that you see, there's someone that you see on YouTube. You want to be like them, or it's a scholar that you read about in the books of the past. It's, you want to be like them and emulate them without wishing any harm or any ill feeling towards them. And that is why it is permissible in that particular instance. And so there is a type of pride that sometimes comes to the comes into the heart of the one who has that knowledge because he sees what other people give to them. One of the things that the scholars would therefore do is they would read these books. The books that soften the hearts, the books of a zuhud. So for example, the book of Imam Ahmad and zuhud was a common work that would be read by many of the scholars towards the end of their classes or maybe for example if they're reading all of Bukhari or Muslim, at the end of that they would read that and it's still like relatively long. Uh, but it's a book that they would read. Or for example, later on, obviously, uh, by a number of centuries, some of the works of Ibn al-Qayyim, his book on Adda'a, his book on the disease and the cure, which is an amazing book. It's a heart-softening book. It's something which tells you to, to be introspective and to hold yourself to account. So the point is that Allah mentions this because it is a major issue that humans have, that, that is in the nature of humans, and Muslims are not exempt from it as well. Muslims are not exempt from it either. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala then moves on to speaking about the time or Allah azza wa negates that, 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 false concept, that false concept that people have, that false notion that they can do what they want and devour the wealth of whomsoever they want and become attached to the dunya without having any judgment passed upon them. Allah azza wa negates that. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Kalla إِذَا دُكَّتِ الْأَرْضُ دَكَّنْ دَكَّا But when the earth is crushed to dust, it is pounded, and pounded. And as Ibn Ashur ta'ala mentioned as we as we said last week, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala moves from the punishments of the worldly uh, sense from Alam what did your Lord do to the people of Ad and Thamud and Pharaoh? Those are worldly punishments. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala then moves to the punishments of the hereafter. Because as we know, for the Prophet, وسلم, his nation, his people, they wouldn't be destroyed in a single blow as those past nations were destroyed, as Ad and Thamud and Pharaoh and others. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives people time and he gives them a chance but ultimately their accounting still comes whether it's in this life or whether it is in the next life. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala brings to our mind the reality of what will happen on Yawm Al-Qiyamah that the earth will be completely flattened, that there will be nothing upon it, that it will be something which is a flat surface and that is the meaning of the word dak, right? The, the asal of the word, the origin of the Arabic root word of dak as we mentioned of, of, of dukkan is the stool that we spoke about last week is that it's referring to something which is flat and similar to it is dak. Dakka can mean dakka, very similar in its 
root word and the qaf means that it is pounded and crushed and turned into dust and as we said that is why the word for for flour in arabic is daqiq because it is something where you take a grain and you pound it and turn it into a powder or into a dust essentially a flour Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in verse number 22, Allah azza wa jal says, وَجَاءَ رَبُّكَ وَالْمَلَكُ صَفًّا صَفًّا And when your Lord comes with the angels, rank upon rank. And that is the translation of Professor Abdul Halim, uh, the translation of Sahih It is essentially uh, very similar. Muhsin uh, Khan, and your Lord comes with the angels in rows. And similar to Mufti Taqi, and your Lord will come and the angels as well lined up in rows, Sahih International. And your Lord has come and the angels rank upon rank. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is still referring to Yawm Al-Qiyamah. So in the previous verse, verse number 21, Allah Azza spoke about the beginning of the day of judgment. And that is uh, mentioned here in the in the sense of the earth being pounded and turned into dust. The earth is pounded into dust, meaning that Yawm Al-Qiyamah has struck. The time of the hour has come, the day of judgment has begun. And then Allah in verse number 22 moves on to the accounting. So this is not a detail, as often is the case in the Quran as we've seen. It is not about giving a detailed account of a step-by-step thing of what will happen on the day of judgment. It's not a step-by-step account of Yawm Al-Qiyamah. But what it is instead is speaking about the things that are most important in context of the message of this surah and the theme of it and what Allah is speaking about here. So we know that Yawm Al-Qiyamah will come meaning, therefore that there will be an accounting or a time of accounting. Verse number 22, that accounting now takes place in, this, in the form of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala coming with the angels Safan Safa. And that is why Al-Imam Al-Tabari, rahimahullah ta'ala, he said, وَإِذَا جَاءَ رَبُّكَ يَا مُحَمَّدُ وَإِذَا جَاءَ رَبُّكَ يَا مُحَمَّدُ وَأَمْلَاكُهُ صُفُوفًا صَفًا بَعْدَ صَفٍ and O Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam, it is that day that your Lord will come along with his angels, all of them lined up in ranks and in rows. And we know that the angels of Allah Azza wa line up in ranks and in rows, just as we do when we come to the prayer. Because the Prophet told us sallallahu alayhi wasallam in the hadith, Alatasufuna Will you not stand in rows as the angels stand in rows with their Lord subhanahu wa ta'ala? The companion said, O Messenger of Allah, how do they stand in rows? He said that they stand close by one another and they stand in a single, in a straight line, meaning that each row is straight. You don't have one person standing forward, one person standing back. And that is why when it comes to salah and you're praying in jama'ah, in congregation, it is the sunnah. And the Prophet would go around and he would check this physically and the companions would go around sometimes with sticks and implements to make sure. Obviously, this is you know in a time where there's no lines on the carpets and there's no rows that have been drawn out on the ground. They would go around to ensure that people were straight and so the Prophet said this and they would stand close together meaning that they don't leave gaps you know like if you look at the social distancing that we had to do and obviously that was an exception to the rule social distancing you leave a gap of a a meter or two between you and the next person that's generally not allowed in salah in salah you stand as close as you can to the person next to you and that is how the angels line up in ranks and in rows in front of their Lord subhanahu wa ta'ala. And the Prophet said that we should be similar when we stand before our Lord, our Lord, row in row and rank upon rank when it comes to the congregational salah. Uh, there is an important aqidah issue that's, that, that comes here in this, in, in this particular verse. And that is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is described as coming. 
وَجَاءَ and your Lord will come. And the word Ja'a, as we know in the Arabic language, means to come. There were a number of, in fact, you will find in a number of the works of Tafsir, uh, a misinterpretation of this attribute of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So, for example, you will find in a number of works of Tafsir that they will say that it is not Allah that will come, but rather it is the command of Allah that will come, or it is the power of Allah that will come, or it is the judgment of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that will come. And so essentially what they're doing is they're making ta'wil, they're reinterpreting this particular attribute of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Now this is an aqidah lesson and, and it will take us too long to go into uh, a detailed discussion of this, but inshallah ta'ala, as we progress, for those of you that are following our Isnad program, as we progress uh, throughout the years and we, we go through the different stages, we will come to the aqidah of Allah azza wa jal when it comes to his names and attributes and we will speak about some of this stuff in more, in more detail. One of the common attributes of Allah Azza wa Jal that is misinterpreted or that it is negated or that it is denied is this one that is mentioned in the Quran, وَجَاءَ Rabbuk, That your Lord will come. And instead it's considered that it will be Allah's command that will come. That it is not Allah Azza wa Jal that will physically come, but that it is His command or His judgment or His power or something else. So that is clearly incorrect. Because Allah Subhanahu wa Ta'ala will come in a manner that befits His majesty. Now how He comes? In which manner he comes, that is knowledge for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala alone. Allah azza wa didn't tell us this and something which shows to you that his manner of coming or approaching was not important is that the companions of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam, when they heard these verses of the Qur'an and they memorized them and they studied them or they heard the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam speak about this and mention this in his, in his sunnah, they never asked or questioned how he would come, Allah azza wa You don't find this question appearing ever in the time of the companions. Not a single companion, even from amongst the Bedouins, who were known to come to the Prophet and ask certain questions, O oh, Messenger of Allah, when is the hour? O oh, Messenger of Allah, tell us something that will save us from Jannah. You know, those questions that they would ask sometimes, which are short and abrupt and, and, and very much to the point, one of the things that you don't hear them asking about is an interpretation of the attributes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. They understood just from their fitra, from their innate nature, that when it comes to Allah Azza wa and His attributes, what He told us, you take and you affirm in the apparent form. And what Allah Azza wa didn't mention in detail isn't worthy of us delving into because it is knowledge that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has kept hidden with himself subhanahu wa ta'ala. So you don't find Abu Bakr or Umar or Uthman or Ali radiallahu anhum, any of the companions saying, O oh, Messenger of Allah, how does Allah Azza wa do this? How did that happen? How does he come or how does he ascend or how does he descend subhanahu wa ta'ala? And that is why when it did start to appear, over a century later, in the time of the likes of Imam Malik when people now started to become more philosophical about this and they had to try to understand in a logical way. And this is always the problem in all of these issues that it is that you, we try to bring Allah Azza wa to, to make sense of Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Taala using our logical, finite, very shortly defined mind. Because our mind doesn't have the power and the ability to conceptualize everything in this universe. Some of us even struggle with some of the stuff around us, let alone Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the creator and the originator of the heavens of the, of the, of the heavens and the earth, Jalla fi And so when we tried, when people started to try to understand these issues, they fell into major problematic uh, problems and major issues. And then what they ended up essentially doing was denying many of the attributes of Allah Azza wa Jalla, many of his names, because that is the only way then that they could reconcile between their logical uh, approach and between what they considered to be unbefitting for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So when the Imam, when the man came to Imam Malik wa ta'ala asking about Allah Azza wa Jal's ascension above his throne, Ar-Rahmanu ala al-Arsh istawa, how does Allah ascend? The Prophet, the Imam Malik wa ta'ala said in response, 
that as for the meaning of the word ascension, it's well known in the Arabic language what it means to ascend. But in terms of how, then that's something which Allah Azza wa kept for himself. It's majhul, we don't know. Allah didn't tell us, the Prophet didn't tell us. And to ask about it is a bid'ah, it is an innovation. Because none of the companions asked about it. And the Prophet didn't approach this issue. And where it's something that was critical for us to know and understand, in order for us to believe in Allah, he would have made it clear to us, sallallahu alayhi wasallam. The fact that he didn't shows to us that it is enough for us to believe. And you don't need to understand the details or uh, the, the way or the manner or anything else because that is something which Allah has kept to himself. And that is why uh, Sadiq Hassan Khan in his tafsir of this verse, he says, and what is correct is that this is from the verse that speaks about the attributes of Allah And it is one that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala kept silent upon meaning in terms of explaining the how of it and, and how it works and so on. And likewise did the vast majority of the scholars of Islam and the Imams of the Salaf, they kept quiet about it, but rather what they did is that they accepted it in its apparent form in the way that it was revealed without going into likening Allah to his creation or asking about how or misinterpreting or denying any of the attributes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Instead, they said that we believe in that which Allah has revealed without in any way changing it. We accept it for what it is and we don't need to go into anything else in terms of uh, you know, in terms of understanding the how and the why and so on and so forth. And our teacher or the teacher of our teacher, Sheikh uh, Muhammad bin Salih al-Uthaymeen, rahimahullah ta'ala, said something very similar in his tafsir of this verse, that Allah Azza wa Jal will come on the day of judgment because it is something which Allah Azza wa Jal describes himself as doing. He says, وَجَاءَ Rabbuk, Your Lord will come. So the fact that Allah Azza wa Jal attributes this action to himself shows that it is something, therefore, that he will do subhanahu wa ta'ala. And anything that Allah Azza wa attributes to himself is an action that belongs to him subhanahu wa ta'ala. He says that is a principle in the Arabic language. You say, Ja'a Zayd, Zayd came. That doesn't mean that Zayd's father came. It doesn't mean that Zayd's owner came. It doesn't mean that Zayd's power came. It means Zayd physically came. And Allah Azza wa revealed the Quran in a clear Arabic language, bilisan in Arabi, mubin. And so therefore it is understood from the Quran that which you would understand in the Arabic language, except for those uh, you know, like exceptions that are well known in uh, in the sciences of the Quran. And he said, and as for turning it away or, or twisting the meaning and saying that rather refers to Allah's power coming or Allah's command coming, he says, and that is changing the Quran and its meaning from that which was well known and understood amongst the early Muslims and amongst the companions and the Salaf of this Ummah. So that's an important issue just to just to put out there and just to remember. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that Allah Azza wa will come and his angels will come and they will come rank upon rank. Safan, Safa, meaning that it will be multiple ranks. And that is why Ata, uh, rahimahullah ta'ala, he said, Safan, Safa, it means the ranks of the angels. And every, or, or the angels of every heaven will be in a single row, meaning that every row will contain the angels of one heaven. And we know that there are seven heavens. And so therefore he says that there will be seven rows or seven ranks of angels. And Allah Azza wa knows best. I don't know of any hadith that speaks about that, but clearly Ata'a is from the major scholars of Tafsir and from the uh, major scholars of the Tabi'een. Uh, the teacher of our teacher, Sheikh Muhammad Al-Amin Al-Shanqiti, he said that the statement of Allah Azza wa وَجَاءَ رَبُّكَ وَالْمَلَكَ that your Lord will come and Al-Malak. Al-Malak is the singular of angels. So it means angel in the singular form. So Malaika is the plural form. Malak is the angel form. And then he says, Safa and Safa, rank upon rank. 
So he says that even though Allah Azza wa Jal uses the singular form, he means that the plural. He means that there will be ranks upon ranks upon of angels. Not just that a single angel will come, but that there will be many, many angels of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that will come rank upon rank. And that is because of two reasons. We know that it's referring to the plural, even though the singular word is used for two reasons. Number one, because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that there will be rank upon rank, and you can't have a single uh, angel rank upon rank, just like you couldn't have one human and say there's rows of humans, right? If it's one person, it won't be rows upon rows. It is a single person. So the fact that Allah Azza wa Jal says that there will be ranks upon ranks shows, therefore, that it is a multitude of angels, that it is a large group of angels of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And the second reason is because there is a well-known convention in the Arabic language that sometimes the singular form is used and the plural is implied. And sometimes the plural is used and the singular form is implied. And it is based upon context and based upon understanding. So here we have context. Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the context Safan, Safa, that the angels of Allah will come rank upon rank. Meaning that there will be companies of angels that will come on the day of Yawm Al-Qiyamah. Uh, Al-Hafidh ibn Kathir rahimahullah ta'ala, he says that Allah Azza wa Jal will come on the day of judgment in order to judge his creation and he says and this is the time that will or this uh, this will come uh, when the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam intercedes on behalf of his nation and on behalf of mankind so we know in the famous hadith that is collected in the sahih in the, in the authentic narrations uh, the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam told us in, in the one on hadith and narration that i'm sure most of you are familiar with that the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam said that on the day of judgment the people will be in extreme distress, extreme hardship because of the difficulties and the terrors of Yawm Al-Qiyamah. And so a group of them will say that we need the accounting to begin because until the accounting begins, nothing will move, nothing will happen, no one will go to any place, nothing will move ahead and the terrors of that day are so strong and so harsh uh, that they will make people or urge them or, or, or push them into trying to make things move. And so they will go to various prophets of Allah Azza wa Jal seeking for them to intercede on behalf of them in front of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So they would go, for example, to Adam alayhi salam. And each one of these prophets or the vast majority of these prophets will excuse themselves because they will say that Allah Azza wa Jal is so angry today. Never has he ever been this angry before, nor will he ever again be this angry. And they will remember certain errors that they committed, certain mistakes that they made, even though Allah Azza wa Jal forgave them. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala pardoned them. There is no sin upon those prophets of Allah azza wa jal for the mistakes that they made because Allah azza wa jal corrected them and forgave them. But such is the terror of that day that just the memory of that mistake, just the fact that it's something which they did is enough to make them uh, not be able to stand before Allah azza wa jal on that day when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala shows that level of anger. And so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will say, well, the people will go, as the Prophet said, they will go to Adam alayhi salam. And he will remember that he disobeyed his Lord when he ate from the tree. And he will say, go to someone else, ila And he will say, nafsi, nafsi. I only care for myself, I only fear for myself on this day. Go to someone else, go to Nuh alayhi salam. For he is the first of Allah's messengers upon the face of the earth. And so they will go to Nuh alayhi salam. And for each of these prophets, and this is from the respect and honor in the way that when you ask a teacher something, there are many benefits from this hadith. But anyway, one of them is the honor that is given to someone of knowledge or of position of status when you address them. So when they come to each of these prophets, they say, Oh Adam, 
you are the father of humankind, Allah created you by his hand and so on. And they will say to Nuh you are the one that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala made the first of Allah's messengers upon earth. You are the one that Allah called in the Quran, Abdan Shakura, a grateful slave. And this is why the Prophet when he wrote to the various leaders, he would address them with their titles. He would say to Hiraq al-Azim al-Rum, the emperor of Byzantine. Why? Because it is from etiquette that you do this. But especially then when it comes to people who are deserving of that etiquette even more from the scholars and from your parents and those people to honor them, it is part of our religion. They will go to Nuh Nuh will remember that he made a dua upon his people that Allah destroyed them all. And he will take that as a, or he will make that as his reason for not interceding in front of people. And he will say instead, go to Ibrahim He is the Khalil of Allah Azza wa Jal. They will go to Ibrahim He will remember the, 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 the things that he said, uh, you know, that he will call lies but in essence they were not lies but he will call them because they appeared to be that way to the one who didn't know its reality and so he will remember that and he will say to them instead go to Musa salam. they will go to Musa salam, and Musa salam will remember that he struck someone and he caused him to die so he will tell them to go to Isa salam. and Isa salam will not mention any sin but he will say it's not befitting for me rather go to Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam and when they come to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam, and this is where Ibn Kathir ta'ala, picks up this hadith and he says, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam will come and, they, and he will say, he will say, ana laha, ana laha, this is for me, this is for me. And then he will go, and he will go to the throne of Allah and fall into prostration and praise and thank Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala until Allah will command the Prophet sallallahu to raise his head and he will ask, and he will be told to ask and he will be given to intercede, his intercession will be accepted. Ibn Kathir says, This is the first of the intercessions of the Prophet on that day. It is known as the Shafa'at al-Kubra or al-Uzma, the great intercession, because it is the intercession to begin the judgment of people on Yawm al-Qiyamah. And it is the Maqam al-Mahmud, the praiseworthy station that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions in Surah al-Isra. Uh, Maqam al-Mahmuda. It is the... It is the, uh, the the praiseworthy station that Allah mentions in Surah Al-Isra and it is the praiseworthy station that we make dua for our Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam for at the end of the Adhan when we say Allahumma Rabbi Hati Da'wati Tama wa Salati Al-Qa'imah Ati Muhammadin Wasilatu Al-Fadila wa Ba'athu Maqam Mahmudan Al-Ladhi Wa'adta That Maqam Mahmud, that praiseworthy station, why is it called the praiseworthy station? Because the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam alone from all of Allah's creation, all of all of Allah's uh, creation will be the only one who will be able to go and intercede be on behalf of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala on that day. And once it begins, then as we know, once the judgment begins, then the Prophet will intercede, and the other prophets intercede, and the believers intercede, and so on. Other people start to make the intercession. Only once, though, that first intercession is made, and that is why it is that praiseworthy station. It is only worthy for one single individual, and the Prophet said, sallallahu alayhi wasallam, and I hope that it will be for me, and it will be for him, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam as we know from the authentic narrations in the Sunnah. And so this is when your Lord will come to begin the intercession, then the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam comes and he, uh, sorry, begin, comes to begin the judgment. The Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam will intercede, his intercession will be accepted. And then the qada, the judgment of Allah Azzawajal's creation of me and you and everyone else will begin on that day. May Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala make it an easy intercession. And that is why one of the du'as uh, that is mentioned, that, that is read in the tashahud and other times as well from the du'as that is mentioned or in the sunnah is the du'a Allahumma hasibni hisaban yaseera Oh Allah give me an easy accounting Allahumma hasibni hisaban yaseera 
Oh Allah, make my accounting easy for me. And that's because some people will have an easy, pleasant accounting in front of Allah Azza wa and other people will have a terrifying accounting. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala make us from amongst those who enter into Jannah without any accounting, without any punishment, us and our parents and our families and our teachers. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in verse number 23, he then continues and he says, وَجِيءَ يَوْمَئِذٍ بِجَهَنَّمْ يَوْمَئِذٍ يَتَذَكَّرُ الْإِنسَانُ وَأَنَّا لَهُ الذِّكْرَى When hell on that day is brought near, on that day man will take heed. But what good will that be to him then? One of the other events that takes place on Yawm Al-Qiyamah as we know is the bringing out of hell fire. That the fire of hell will be brought forth. And the fire of hell is something which Allah Azza wa has already created, already exists. And the position of some groups of Islam that it's not created, that Jannah and Hawfah have yet to be created, is an incorrect position. Based upon the general text of the Quran and the Sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ, the Prophet ﷺ said that he went into Jannah and he saw the palace of Umar. He heard the footsteps of Bilal. He heard, and so many times he spoke about this. And he said that I looked into the fire and I saw the vast majority of its inhabitants and I saw this and I saw that. So the fact is that it has been created. And we have other hadith in which the Prophet ﷺ told us that when Allah first created Jannah and first created the Hawfire, he sent Jibreel to look at each one of them. One of these hadith that we have within the Sunnah. So the Hawfire, the, the, the fire of Hal will be brought out and brought forth and brought near. It will be brought out. Who brings it out is not mentioned. The word ji'a is the same as ja'a. Ja'a is to bring, but it's when you know the one, or ja'a is to come, but it's when you know who the one coming is. Ji'a in the Arabic language is the verb that is used when the person or the one doing it is unknown. It is ma la yu'lam fa'iluhu or mabni al-majhul. It is where you don't know. You, you, it's unknown who will do the bringing or who will do the coming. So the fire of hell will be, will be brought out, or will come near. Who will bring it out? That isn't mentioned in the Quran. However, it is mentioned in the Sunnah. In the hadith of Abdullah bin Mas'ud radiallahu anhu in Sahih Muslim. And it's also mentioned in the books of Tafsir as the statement of Ibn Mas'ud radiallahu anhu himself. But it's mentioned in Sahih Muslim as an hadith uh, attributed to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam, and obviously since Sahih Muslim, so it's authentic that the Prophet said sallallahu alayhi wasallam, "Yuta bi jahannam yom idin, laha sab'una alf zimam, ma'a kulli zimam sab'una alf malakin yajrunha." The day the, on that day, meaning on Yom Al-Qiyamah, the fire of hell will be brought out with seventy thousand chains. Upon every one of those chains will be seventy thousand angels pulling it, and that shows to you the vastness of the fire of hell, it shows to you how big it will be and it shows to you therefore how it will be able to include all of Allah's creation that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala deems and commands that they will be from the inhabitants of the fire May Allah Azza wa was from that. 70,000 chains upon each chain will be 70,000 angels pulling it. Al-Imam Al-Tabari uh, rahimahullah ta'ala says that Allah Azza wa Jal says وَجِيءَ يَوْمَئِذٍ بِجَهَنَّمْ Allah Azza wa Jal will bring forth the day, Allah Azza wa Jal will bring forth the fire of hell on that day. And that is the day then, وَجِيءَ يَوْمَئِذٍ بِجَهَنَّمْ يَوْمَئِذٍ يَتَذَكَّرُ الْإِنسَانِ And it will be on that day when people will take heed, when people will remember, when people will realize, when people will no longer be any, uh, under any uh, illusion or any false notion or any misconception or doubt or confusion as to the reality of what is true and what is falsehood. 
of what they wasted in terms of their life in the dunya, the opportunity, if they disbelieved and turned away from Allah Azza wa that is the day that they will realize. Ibn Kathir ta'ala says, so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, يَوْمَ إِذِينَ يَتَذَكَّرُ الْإِنسَانِ That is the day upon which people will remember, mankind will remember, meaning they will remember their actions in the dunya and that which they did beforehand, meaning what they left behind in terms of their dunya, وَأَنَّا لَهُ ذِكْرَى but what will it benefit them to remember on that day? And that is why to, you know, this is an extremely powerful verse. And it should remind us and make us take heed of what it is that we do day to day. Every single day that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allows us to wake up, it is an opportunity to do good deeds. And as we've said multiple times, and I don't think I need to keep repeating this caveat, but just, you know, to make sure, because sometimes you get these comments or you get complaints afterwards, but I think, alhamdulillah, we've known each other long enough now and we've been part of QP for long enough to know that we understand that when we say something like, you know, work for the Akhirah, that doesn't in any way diminish your responsibilities as a husband, as a wife, as a mother, as a father, as a son, as a daughter, as an employer, employee, teacher, student, whatever role it is that you fulfill. You have rights and responsibilities. Those rights and responsibilities are part of what makes us Muslims and they're part of the responsibilities that Allah has placed upon us. But also, at the same time, to actively work for the Akhirah because those responsibilities in terms of looking after our parents and others. Sometimes we don't necessarily have the intention of doing it for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Sometimes our intention may be for something else. But when it comes to working actively for the Akhirah in terms of seeking knowledge, giving sadaqah, prayer, reciting Quran, making dhikr, all of those other actions, those are things that should play an active role in our lives just as waking up, eating, drinking, going to work, looking after our kids. All of that plays a normal everyday routine and part of our life. Ibadah of Allah Azza wa Jal, worshipping Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, actively working for the Akhirah, should be something which should be just as second nature to us as those other things are as well. And so when we reflect upon that, what is it that I achieved today? What have I attained today? How did I better myself today over yesterday? What can I do more to increase uh, and come closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? And that is why it is amazing. When you hear the uh, the, the stories of some of the scholars of Islam and the biographies of some of the scholars of Islam, how amazing it was that they would literally every single day see it as an opportunity. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala passes by so many opportunities before us. Every day we hear that there's someone asking for charity. Every day we hear, oh, there's an opportunity that there's a lesson to learn about our religion or a class or something else. Every day we see and come across and we're aware of opportunities in terms of building for our Akhirah and working to come closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But most of us, for one reason or another, shaitan, our desires, laziness, whatever it may be, procrastination, we will delay or we will let that opportunity pass by or we will, you know, we will think that it's something which we can do at a later time or a later date. And so opportunities miss us by. And before we know it, we will be at that station where we will say, يَتَذَكَّرُ insan. People will remember, وَأَنَّ لَهُ الذِّكْرَ But what benefit will it do for them? to remember upon that day. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is giving us this reminder here. And one of the most amazing things is when you come across those people, if you have been fortunate in your life, that every opportunity that comes across them, they take it in terms of building for their akhirah. Sheikh ibn Baz, rahimahullah ta'ala, for those of you that are familiar with him and his name, and for those of you that may have read his biography or heard of his life, is probably in our time one of the few people that I have come across or that I've heard of, uh, rahimahullah ta'ala, who did this on a daily basis. Rarely would an opportunity come 
except that he took it. This is a man, subhanAllah, as, as some of his contemporaries used to say, that this is a man that should have lived in the second or third century of Islam, and Allah put him in our time. Every single moment, his students who were very close, some of them spent 20, 30 odd years uh, with him, knowing him, studying from him, uh, being with him in his house, traveling with him. Every single day, every moment of opportunity that we would come, he would grasp it. Someone comes and asks for charity, he would give them something, even if it's a small amount. Someone else comes and needs help, he needs the sheikh to go and intercede on his behalf or speak to someone, he would do it. There's a lesson, he would go and attend it. Even if he's sitting, he's been invited to a wedding, for example, he would accept the invitation because it's part of the sunnah also. But then when he would go there, he would say to someone, read some Quran. They would read a few verses of the Quran and he would give a very short five-minute tafsir. Because it's a wedding, people are obviously going to do what they do, but at least there was some benefit taken from it. Every single opportunity that he had, he would take that opportunity. Visiting the sick, visiting the poor, helping people, giving his lessons and lectures, doing his everything that he could find, he would do. And some of his students say that we rarely ever remember someone coming and asking and him saying no. Unless he was obviously already you know, preoccupied, meaning he's already committed to a different appointment or, or something else, that's a different issue because he's already committed to something. But in terms of him just not having, you know, having the capacity to do so, even when he's driving, even when he's going from location to location, he has a student with him reading, or he has one of his employees you know, asking him a question that it's something he needs to do because the, the sheikh was the mufti of Saudi Arabia, they would be reading letters and fatwas and he would be responding, the sheikh was blind, and so they would, he would need people to write for him and, and read for him and so on. And this is how he would use his time from the moment that he woke up to the moment that he fell asleep each and every single day in addition to his own personal ibadah that no one sees because he's making dhikr and so on. I remember one of the, um, it's actually uh, someone from the UK who, who once went to uh, see the sheikh in, in Riyadh. This is a long time ago, probably 30, 40 odd years ago, maybe even longer. And he remembers that he, the sheikh was going to leave his house and go to the masjid. Leave his house and go to the masjid, it's like a three, four minute walk to his local masjid. And so this, this brother was with him. And so the Shaykh Rahman Ta'ala on that day didn't have many of, uh, there weren't many students or guests with him. So he asked, can I take you, Shaykh Min, can I hold your hand and guide you to the masjid? Because the Shaykh would need someone because he's blind to walk with him. So the Shaykh said yes. He said, I thought that it would be an opportunity for me to ask questions. I've come here, I want to ask questions to the Shaykh. He said, as soon as I started asking the first question, the Shaykh stopped me. And he said, this isn't the time for questions, this is the time for dhikr. On the way to the masjid, use this time to prepare yourself to stand in salah and to pray to Allah Azza wa Jal. Make a dhikr of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You don't want to be there thinking about other things and, and so on. Even if there is Islamic questions and messiah, you want to you wanna purify your heart and empty your mind of everything except the salah. And just these small things that you hear that the Shaykh was like and other scholars as well, he's not the only one, but he's someone who comes to mind because I heard and I know many of his students and the time that they would spend with him and the stories that they relayed to me. Uh, it is something which is still possible in our time. If a person has and purifies their heart and they actively work for this and they do something, they, it is something which they, Sheikh bin Baz, ta'ala, it is said that he memorized the Al-Fiyah, a thousand verse poetry in one of the Islamic sciences, and I forget if it was Hadith now or something else, but he memorized it when he would make wudu. Every day he's making wudu, he would memorize the next couple of verses. And in this way, over a a year or two or however long it was he memorized this so even those moments and this is something which by the way you read if you read the biographies of the old scholars of the past scholars in the second third fourth century this is what you hear about them and that's why some of the scholars used to say by Shaykh bin Baz that he belonged at that time so this is what Allah is referring to here before you come to that moment of regret and remorse on Yawm Al-Qiyamah use this time that you have now 
in terms of turning to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and asking Allah azza wa jal to help you in terms of everything that it is that you need. Al-Qurtubi rahimahullah ta'ala said, and what benefit will it do for a person to be reminded, to remember, to make tawbah on Yawm Al-Qiyamah when they wasted their time in this world? Because we know that on that day, benefit or being, being reminded won't benefit. Being remorseful won't benefit. Trying to make tawbah won't benefit. Asking forgiveness won't benefit. Everything that a person will regret in terms of the time that they wasted, the opportunities that passed them by, on that day, there is no scope for attaining any of that. Meaning, from how or in which way can reminder on that day uh, benefit them. And that is why Allah says about the mu'mineen, from the attributes of the believers, as Allah mentions in the Quran, and remind the believers for verily reminding benefits them, profits them. The believer is the one when they hear the Quran, they're doing a tafsir class, they hear a hadith of the Prophet they come across someone else reading the Quran, making dhikr of Allah Azza wa Jal, they hear it on, on YouTube or they're passing by and someone's playing Quran. It's something which reminds them of Allah Azza wa Jal when they're surrounded by people that remind them of Allah Subhanahu wa Ta'ala. These are the things that we need to be surrounded by. And when you find that type of company and you can surround yourself uh, with, that, with that each and every single day, your books, you know, like I, a number of the scholars would say that we don't have friends. Our friends are our books because they found within that their way to being reminded of the Akhirah. For each person, it may be slightly different and their path may be slightly differing. But the point is that you use that in order to come closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Uh, Allah Azza wa Jal in verse number 24, he says, لحياتي, He will say, Would that I had provided for this life to come. Sa'id ibn Jubayr, the famous scholar of the Tabi'in from the students of Ibn Abbas and others, عنهم, he said that deception when it comes to Allah Azza wa Jal being deceived about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is that a person continuously sins and disobeys Allah and then thinks that Allah will surely forgive me. That is a person being deceived about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And deception in this dunya is that a person works and becomes engrossed within it and becomes busy with it to the extent that they sacrifice the akhirah and working for it. They become so mesmerized with the dunya or thinking that they will live for so long and whatever it may be that they leave off everything else. They leave off everything else. And that's why he says, Rahimullah ta'ala, Mata'ul Ghurur that Allah Azza wa Jal says, dunya illa mata'ul ghurur. This world, this life is only the uh, is only a deception, it is only a, a, a mata' is something like a product or something that you own, something that you possess, and ghurur is deception. It is a deceptive product, it is a deceptive uh, thing that you can own. He says, Ta'ala, it is called Mata'ul Ghurur because it takes you away from what is your true product or should be your true aim, your true business that you should be working for, and that is the one of the Akhirah. And if it doesn't, it is if it isn't something that takes you away from the Akhirah, but it doesn't really benefit you either, then it is still a product that you shouldn't be busied with. Uh, Ibn Ashur, Rahimahullah Ta'ala, he says that Allah Azza wa begins this verse by using the word Ya. What Ya means O. Oh. And it is harful nida. It is a, it is the letter to call out to something to show uh, its importance and to draw attention to it. But on this particular occasion, you normally say, "Oh Muhammad, Oh Zaid, Oh this or that." Or when you make a dua, "Allahumma, Oh Allah," is to call out and to draw attention to yourself. 
on this particular instance or in this particular case on Yawm Al-Qiyamah, they will be drawing attention to themselves. They're not calling to anyone else because they will realize that no one else can benefit me, no one else can help me. Ya Laytani, woe to me, O myself. They are lamenting and calling out to themselves. Qaddamtu lihayati ifani, I had put something forth for my life. And what does it refer to? Which life is being referred to? And Imam Al-Qurtubi said that the scholars of Tafsir had different positions. One of them is, uh, is that it's referring to the life that is coming ahead, meaning the Akhirah, the life of the Akhirah. If only I had put something forth for my life, meaning my next life. So if only I had worked in the dunya in order to work for the life after which there will be no death, for the life after which there will be no death. And others said that it's referring to uh, that it's referring to uh, the life of the grave, as Ibn Atiyah Taala mentions. That if only I had worked together, worked in order to help me in terms of the life that I will have in the grave. And obviously, after the grave, then there is the life of the akhirah. And others said that now it's referring to the past life. If only I had worked for my life, meaning if I had worked hard in the life of the dunya, which obviously ultimately benefits us in the akhirah. Those are the three different interpretations. Essentially, as you can see, though, they have the same meaning. If you worked for this life, benefits you in the Akhirah. If it means that you worked for the next life, it obviously means that you worked hard in this life for the benefit of the Akhirah and likewise for the life of the grave. And those are the three distinct stages, therefore, that we know in terms of life and existence, the existence of this dunya, the existence of the barzakh, which is in the grave, and the existence of, of the next life, which begins with Yawmul Qiyamah. Uh, Ibn Jarir al-Tabari, rahimahullah ta'ala, he said that Allah Azza wa mentions here that the people of, uh, the people on that day will show extreme remorse and regret and they will say, Ya laytani qaddamtu li hayati if only I had put something forward for my life. And they will do this or they will show their, their regret and their remorse for all of the, the good deeds that they could have performed in the dunya that they didn't do. And they will regret because they will see the, the, the pleasure of Jannah and its rewards and its beauty and what they have lost as a result. So they will regret what they lost in terms of the opportunity of doing good deeds and they regret and remorse because they see what has escaped them. As the Prophet ﷺ told us that Jannah is something which no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has imagined. As Allah says in the Quran, no soul knows that which has been prepared for it in of delight and pleasure in Jannah as a result and as a reward for that which they used to do. And that is for the believers. So they regret what they did in terms of missed opportunity. They regret because now they see or they realize the benefit that they would have had, the reward that Allah had prepared and how they have lost that as well. Ibn Kathir ta'ala says that they will regret that which they did in terms of their sins in this world and they would have wished that instead they could have replaced them with doing good deeds and obedience to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. I want to conclude uh, today's lesson, so inshallah ta'ala we're going to kind of stop there, but I want to conclude with uh, a statement from Ibn al-Qayyim rahimahullah ta'ala concerning these two verses that we that we just did, verses uh, 23 and 24. Ibn al-Qayyim rahimahullah ta'ala, he says that this these two verses therefore show that true life and existence is the existence of the heart. And the true age of a person, meaning the true age, when someone asks how old you are, it's essentially a form of saying how long have you spent upon the earth. The true time that a person has spent is the time in which they worked for the sake of Allah Azza wa Jal and for their next life. Because all of the time that a person has every hour 
is hours of their life. For others, hours beneficial. Will they help them or will they be regretful and remorseful? Therefore, a person's true life and true time is the time that they will have that they filled with bir, with piety and with righteousness and with obedience to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That is your true life and your true time and your true age. Everything else is not a true uh, existence of your time or it's not a true spending of your time. And he says, therefore, in essence, when a person turns away from Allah Azza wa Jal and they busy themselves with disobeying Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, they have lost their time and their real life has just passed them by. And they will only realize how much they have wasted when they come on that day and they will say, Ya laytani qaddamtu lihayati. So a person in this life has to look and to see what will benefit them in this world and what will ultimately benefit them in the next life as well. And then they have to work towards that and they have to spend their life attaining that. And the problems or the difficulties and the obstacles that come across their path, they need to work over them. And he says, and the heart of the matter or the secret of the matter, if you like, is that a person's uh, is, a, if, is that a person's life or existence in this life is, or the true existence of a person in this life is when they realize that they need to attach themselves to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and turn to Him in love and turn to Him in remembrance and turn to Him in showing that His pleasure is more important to them than their own pleasure. His desire subhanahu wa ta'ala is more important than our desires. When you do this, you spend your life, you attune your life towards working for that great goal. And remember, my dear brothers and sisters, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has only given us a finite time in this life. This is our work. This is our job. This is, if you like, our career to worship Allah azza wa jal. If you need to think about it in those terms, think about it in those terms. And your reward, your paycheck, whatever you want to call it, your retirement is in the next life that will be for eternity and forever and ever. And so when a person works for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and yes, it's difficult, just like your job's difficult. Yes, there's problems, just like there's jobs, there's problems in your job. Yes, there's hardships, just like there are in your job. It is exactly much in the same way, perhaps sometimes more severe and greater. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reserves or reserves that reward for those people who can attune themselves to his pleasure subhanahu wa ta'ala in this life. And Allah azza wa jal forgives them therefore for the sins that they've committed if he sees their sincerity and their desire to show repentance and to turn to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in forgiveness. I ask Allah azza wa jal that he makes us from the people of Jannah and that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allows us to benefit from our time upon this life that Allah azza wa jal extends our life upon good and upon iman and upon righteousness that we will benefit from those actions on the day of judgment. So inshallah ta'ala we will conclude here for today. Barakallahu feekum. Wa sallallahu sallam bin Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in. Wa alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.